Welcome to the Beast, my friends. Today I have my colleagues Ed William and Dylan O'Sullivan joining me from across the Atlantic to discuss Sicario. Thanks for joining hey, me, guys. Good to be here. Pleasure. That was the scariest intro to a podcast yeah. I've ever heard. Setting the tone right away. <laughs> so I, I think we're just going to do a quick intro about the film and our background with it. And then let's do the spoiler horn and go into like dig deep, right? My kind of context here is I'm a huge Denis Villeneuve fan, not just because he's from the same corner of the world as me and he has a similar accent, but I think he's one of the best and most talented directors working today. And his films really resonate with me. So I think this was my fourth time seeing Sicario. To me, good films are like good books or good albums, right? They can be rewatched because they have all these layers and you see different things every time. To me, this is one of those. The quick info on the films, right? For someone who hasn't seen it, it's directed by Denis Villeneuve. It's written by Taylor Sheridan. It was part of his Frontier trilogy with Wind River and Hell or High Water. And I think I would rank them as like, for me, Sicario number one, Wind River number two, and Hell or High Water number three. Music is by Johan Johansson uh, from Iceland, who sadly died in 2018, uh, the age of 48 from, I think, an overdose, which is very, very sad. I'd forgotten he died until doing the prep for this episode. He was only 48. I'm finding out right now. Literally listening to him yesterday. Sorry to give you the bad news. Yeah, he was extremely Jesus. talented. Yeah. The film is shot by Roger Deakins, one of my favorite cinematographers. So many frames from a variety of his films I could put up on my walls and look at them forever. I think he's amazing. Emily Blunt is in this. I loved her in this, and I think she's great also in Edge of Tomorrow, another underrated film, kind of a hybrid between Groundhog Day and Starship Troopers. Josh Brolin, Benicio Del Toro. I think that's the, the high-level stuff. But I'm, I'm curious, guys, how many times have you seen this? Are you huge fans? Or is, are you coming to it fresh? I'm curious. I think this is my second time watching it. I started watching it. I was like, I don't think I've actually seen this, even though I thought I had. I said, I don't think I've actually seen this before. And I was like, oh, maybe this is Traffic with uh, Del Toro as well, which is also kind of cartel-based. And then about a third of the way through, I was like, actually, no, I have seen this. But it was like in college, we watched movies pretty much every night in various states of Compass Mentis. So some of them are more hazy than others. But then I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. It clicked about halfway through. I'm not like, I, I love all Villeneuve's movies. He's not like... um I don't check what's coming out next for him. So he's not like a director I follow that way. But like, it's been like a one-to-one -one correlation with like, I like everything that he's done that I've seen. So I think this is my my fourth or my fifth time seeing the film. But my origin story with it is pretty similar to yours, Dylan, in that I remember the first time I saw it, I was... Well, the film came out in 2015, so I think it must have been 2016. And I was in like a, a student flat with like my two best mates who actually are going to be my best men this year at my wedding. But they, um, it, and it was like a proper student flat where like we had a, sort of a pretty small TV like wall mounted on the wall, which I always had like Rick and Morty or something on. And then we had like another TV set up in front of it where I, where we play FIFA. And then we'd usually have like the football on and an iPad and there'd all be beers on the go and people coming and going. It was that sort of like student house. So I remember the first time I saw it, someone obviously had got it on DVD and it was playing on the TV, but like we weren't really watching it. It was just on in the background, just chilling. And then I think it was the, the beast scene was like, Jesus Christ, what like what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, it's amazing. <laughs> and then like, so watch that and was like, wow. And then we got distracted again. And then it got to the tunnel scene. And again, it was like, wow, what is this? So then, then so then it got to the end of the film. We're like, we need to properly watch this film. So then we watched it beginning to end, like in silence the next day. And we're like, yeah, okay, this is an incredible film. And then, yeah, I've watched it a couple of times since then. Bill Neal was definitely my favourite blockbuster director. His films like made to be seen Like they're big movies with like big ideas on the big screen and like even if you know that's not your favorite type of film it's like an important corner of filmmaking and like he's like the, the very pinnacle of that i reckon wow this is such a late millennial early gen z story of like yeah. four screens on at the same time and it's <laughs> yeah. mixed attention <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like a, yeah yeah it sounds a bit like a hellscape to some people but it was fun i'm gonna crank up the spoiler horn and then let's dig in Right from the intro of the film, right? Because I hadn't seen it in a few years. So you, you remember a lot of the big beats and the big scenes, but now I was trying really to pay attention to the details. And even from the first frames, I think Roger and, and Denis, they really understand contrast, right? The wide landscape and the desert, the houses, and then you start seeing those black you know, figures walking around and you know, okay, SWAT teams, and then it pans around to sniper position. And I don't know, I, I just love how it's shot. It could almost be a, a Western at first, like it's super widescreen, the desert and everything. But right away right they know how to build tension the music the heartbeat and everything kind of builds up right away to this raid this burst of violence basically the way i look at it they wanted to show you right away like 
anything could happen in this film very quickly. It's not a film where violence is like elongated and like tried to make it look cool, a firefight that lasts for 10 minutes, room by room, right? It's, it's more like something happens and either you're dead or you kill the other, but it's like very, very quick. I'm curious what you think of that early raid scene. Yeah, for me, it was like, because again, I, I really wasn't sure if I'd seen it when I was coming in and it was just all the color immediately. Just again, as you say, with that kind of black on yellow, there's nothing else to look at. So your eyes aren't darting left or right. You're just kind of slightly leaning forward. And then I think it's like the first other color. Then he's like, you know, they turns the corner, red curtain, boom, blood in the wall. There's like layers and layers adding to the action as well. Just that uh, attention to detail that grabbed me straight away. Yeah, as you both said, in terms of tone setting, it's like that is the film right there in terms of the atmosphere and the dredge. Quite interesting, I was listening to a podcast with, I think it was with Roger Deakins to prep for this and... He said that it was quite a tight budget, so nearly everything they shot they used. They didn't do much coverage, and they didn't have many scenes that they cut or anything like that. But apparently one of the only things they did cut was they filmed a different opening with uh, Benicio Del Toro's character. Apparently it was like a scene on a beach or something. Apparently it was like a really good scene, and Roger Deakins was like, oh, it's one of the best things I've shot. Like, I'm gutted they didn't use it. He said they chose not to use it because they were like, well, we need to open with this as Emily Blunt's character's story, not his story. He needs to come in more mysteriously later in the film. So I think that was the right call, but I just thought that was quite interesting. I'd like to see that cutscene. I also heard that, and I think it makes sense. I think the whole film is kind of a subversion of the thriller generally, right? You think this is Kate's story, but really, uh, we'll talk about it later, but in the tunnel scene, like the perspective changes, and now you realize it's really Alejandro's stories. Kate is not a normal protagonist because she doesn't have much influence on what's going on. She's kind of a witness, right? She's just kind of being dragged along and she has no idea what's going on for most of the film. And so we don't have any idea the first time we see it, which is why it's such a good rewatch, right? Because the second time you see everything very differently. But the first time I remember being so lost and it makes sense because she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Do you think that was supposed to be her first kill when she shoots the guy in the house? I don't know. That's a good question. Seemed like Reggie's first raid anyway. He was struggling, but yeah, 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 yeah. Reggie was in over his head, I think. <laughs> I heard an interview with Emily Blunt where she talked about how she interviewed four female FBI agents to prepare for the role. Mm -hmm. And they told her that it's very, very rare that you fire a weapon, right? Because they've been watching the house for like for weeks or months. They know where mm -hmm. everybody is, they know everybody's routines, they have bugs planted. They, there should be no big surprises. I don't know if the film is written like that. That could be. The other thing that is very special about that scene, I think, is it looks like an action film at first, but then it, very quickly it changes, right? After the, the explosion, when they find something in the shed, and this is, I think, another thing that makes you go, okay, anything could happen at any moment, right? You think it's over, but it's not. So they want to keep the tension going. And then the way it's filmed, where they have like that shot pushing into the face of the guy in the wall with the plastic bag, and you see the, the hand on the ground, it's, it's very horror-like. The vibe changes very quickly once the action is over. And I think that's another kind of like jar bending a little bit where a, a normal thriller wouldn't do this. I think Denis is very good at holding shots longer than most directors mm. to build attention, which there are many examples of in this film. So that I kind of noticed that horror vibe in the early shots there. Everyone's being sick in the background and it sort of just lingers on them, just like doubled over. Um, yeah, that yeah. German shepherd running after the explosion. Yeah, and all yeah, the, yeah. the little yeah. details, right? I, I yeah. think it, it builds attention very well with, with just a few elements. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I think you start introducing Josh Brolin's character, Matt. And on the first watch, like, you have no idea what's going on. And basically, when Kate talks to her partner and they ask, like, what's going on? I have no idea. Like, that could be the, <laughs> the mission statement for a lot of the film for them, right? It's just... No idea at all. On second watch, you realize, like, when they talk about, like, oh, they don't want the other guy because he's a lawyer, and then they ask her, are you married? Do you have kids? They're trying to figure out, like, okay, is she, like, a, a normal civilian that's not going to go along with this stuff? Or, like, do we have a chance of getting her to do her stuff, right? Because she's on the FBI and the kidnap response team. She doesn't do narcotics. She has no idea what, about any of this, right? They, they picked her specifically because she has no clue, which is kind of a the opposite of what you would have in most of these types of action films are where the hero is the, the expert and they, they know everything that's going on. Especially with a Sheridan movie, often it's like, you know, quite traditional plots. He's, he's kind of not afraid to do like with Hell or High Water, he did that. It was pretty straightforward. But then you, can, you kind of get settled into Blunt as your kind of uh, window in. And then when you go into that scene where Brolin's introduced, then all of a sudden, like, it blends into their voices through the noise-proof glass, 
where you're hearing but she can't hear you're kind of getting a one-up on her in a weird way straight away and then obviously there's the dialogue was like yeah it's not in the file like she just seems to know nothing so that they kind of they layer it on then so matt's flip-flops are a nice little marker of his character right you immediately know what kind of guy he is like the, the flip-flop was a nice touch Yeah, for sure. I was, I was going to say that like, I love, in, in any film, like, I love good character introduction. Like Tarantino does it really well. And even like Sergio Leone and stuff used to do it. Like, yeah, a, a good character introduction is always a, such a highlight of a film. And here's like the flip-flops. I think he's wearing a t-shirt and everyone else is in suits. He's sort of like slouched right back on his seat. I think he's fiddling with something and he's like constantly smirking. He's just so clearly like on a completely different wavelength to everyone else there different level of power then as well it's a flex he's like you do i don't have to and exactly. i'm gonna kind of rub it in a bit yeah yeah apparently josh brolin originally said no to the part because he was like oh this character's like i think he'll come across as a bit like um apparently he read it and he was like oh this character's a bit of a gimmick but like, i think his character it's such an important i mean in terms of plot role he's important but his vibe his sort of like smarmy smirky thinks he's better than everyone always knows a bit more than everyone else there so clearly operates above the rules is The way he portrays that is so important to the film, I reckon. Yeah, all the quiet scenes, even like in the yeah. motel rooms and stuff. He's the one kind of setting the vibe in all of those. And you kind of, there's like a level of mirth in those ones where it could yeah. be dry and kind of slow. But he yeah. kind of keeps it going, yeah. Conveying a backstory, right? Like, this is not his first rodeo, right? He's done that kind of stuff. Like, he he has all kinds of information and he's plugged into all kinds of capabilities of the, the intelligence agency and all that that the others don't have. And you can kind of feel that in his confidence. And yeah, yeah the hotel, right? Opens, opens the door, like, shirtless and just walks around. And, like, this is just fun for him, right? This is just his comfort zone. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, today's going to be a good day before the raid. And he's sort of smiling and, yeah. Actually, that reminds me, have you guys seen the sequel? The Day of the Sorade? I haven't. No, I heard about it, but I haven't seen it. I didn't. Yeah, it's not directed by Villeneuve, so... Yeah, it, it got pretty slated, I think. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but that reason, it, I didn't want it to sort of sully the original. It sounds like that, basically, because it didn't have Emily Blunt's character, did it? So it was just Alejandro and Matt. It sounded like a more traditional film. Yeah. Back to what you mentioned about good character introductions. I think the same happens with Alejandro, right? You just... The first time you see him is, is next to the jet... You see a side shot of him. He looks very cool, very calm. And apparently, they kind of built this character by removing stuff. In various interviews, they mentioned that they cut basically almost 90% of the dialogue that Alejandro was supposed to have. I, I couldn't have guessed it. He almost never speaks in the film. And to me, that's, that's his character, right? It makes a ton of sense that he's keeping everything very close to the vest. I don't know. He's kind of a, a shadow, a ghost, right? That's the metaphor they used for him at one point. There's a scene when he gets in the plane and um, Kate asks him his name and he doesn't answer. So then I was like, all right, are we ever going to find out? I don't <laughs> think we do. I could be totally wrong there. Um, uh, I think maybe Matt mentions it, but yeah. Maybe, it... maybe he does. Yeah, because then I was like, all right, because I couldn't remember. I went back and checked the script, Sheridan's script, and then it is like Kate says, oh, what's your name? He says, oh, Alejandro. So obviously that was something that if it was, they decided just to kind of kick it down uh, the plot line a bit. Yeah, apparently Del Toro was just like, For loads of lines, he'd be like, oh, I can say that with my face. I can say that with my face. On, like, Daniel Kaluuya's Reuben episode, he said, like, he learned so much from acting with Del Toro because, yeah, he, everything Del Toro would be like, I don't need to say that. I don't need to say that. Which is why <laughs> which is why it's quite funny that one of the very few lines they do leave in for him was that, like, um, you're asking me how a watch works or what he did yeah. to tell the time, which is like, a cool line on paper, but it's also a bit, it's a very, like, movie line, isn't it? Like, if someone said that to you in real life, you'd be a bit like, what the fuck, mate? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> very Sheridan line. Like, yeah. Really, yeah. yeah. It worked for me. It worked for me. But yeah, yeah it is It is a very kind of almost too cool line. Yeah, 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 exactly. Another thing I thought was well done and effective They set up the parallel storyline with the Mexican policeman. You kind of see his family life and his work. And like on first viewing, right, you may not be too sure why they do that. But I think it makes the later scene in the tunnel so much more effective because it's not just some random NBC. And it was also a nice reminder that all this stuff, right, all the cartel violence and all that stuff has all kinds of collateral damage, right? Real people just trying to make a living and they get chewed out by, by this terrible war. It serves as a counterpoint as well because Matt and Alejandro are like, giggling and laughing their way it's like a big game to them at points so then to kind of counterbalance that with those two i think works as well yeah another kind of subversion is that at first you may watch this and think oh it's a good guy versus bad guy film right it's like oh mm -hmm. the fbi are going to catch the, the cartel guys or something and then <laughs> not at all right it's like 
super morally questionable on all sides. And even if you're doing something for good reasons, if you do it like a certain way, is it still good? Is it like, it, you don't see everything, but there's so much torture implied and there are no clear good guys here. Yeah, for sure. And I'd say actually like watching it again this time, one I'd, I'd forgotten, obviously I knew it was dark because of the subject matter, but I'd forgotten just quite how unrelentingly bleak it is as a film. And it's interesting that since releasing this, Villeneuve's gone straight sci-fi. I don't think he's done a non-sci-fi story since, I don't think. He's done Arrival, Blade Runner, and then Gene. I haven't quite worked out what I think about this yet, but then the a part of me wonders whether the film doesn't always quite get the balance right between like being this really dark story, but also being like a cool film, especially with like the night vision sequence, like, that's quite a cool sequence. And I, I, definitely when I watched it the first time, it was sort of like, oh, wow. I sometimes wonder whether it sort of treads that boundary right or whether it sometimes leans too much on the latter at the expense of the former. I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah, it is it, it is very dark, right? When they go to Juarez, like the bridge scene, right? That's quite the image there. Villeneuve had been doing, like Prisoners is ex- extremely dark too. Mm, um, yeah. The, the only film of his that I haven't seen is Polytechnic, one of his early French language films, because it's about a school shooting here in Quebec, where a guy basically went in, lined up all of the men on one side, the women on the other, and shot the women, right? And it's just, oh my gosh. I, I, I haven't been able to watch it, right? Mm. I think he's been exploring very, very dark team for a while. I kind of think it still works in that he doesn't, the, the violence in are kind of cool, but not too glorified. They're, they're still pretty matter-of-fact, like they're, they're still mm-hmm. fairly, like, like not purely documentary style, but quick and fairly realistic, kind of confusing. And, and that, that's a good question. Like, I, I think his intent was to keep it fairly realistic and not glorify it. But as soon as you have a bunch of people like, in tactical gear walking around and like, it, it you know, can't help but be kind of cool. Yeah, it's not fist pumpy, as it? it's not like a Michael Bay version where it's oh, no. like... The, the intention is definitely there. I just sometimes wonder whether it completely pulls it off or whether just because it's a product of such talented people with such striking visuals it, it it crosses the line i don't i don't i haven't actually decided what i think about it but that was just something that crossed my mind when i was watching it this time around speaking of cool scenes let's let's talk about the the beast right well another good example of how kate is totally lost she's an outsider they're driving by a bunch of attack helicopters right you can see that this is not her world they get in there and there's a bunch of badass delta guys straight back from afghanistan this is serious stuff, right? This isn't just like, oh, let's do a normal law enforcement, like, let's go pick up a guy at a prison, right? They have the marshals there, the big Texas guys with the big cowboy hats and the Delta Force, and all of that is setting up what's coming. It's all building the tension so that when something happens, like, the water is boiling by that point, right? And the line, uh, when she asks, and he's like, nothing will make sense to your American hears, and you will doubt everything we do, and in the end, you will understand. That's another kind of mission statement for the film, right? Because as the viewer nothing makes sense and you doubt everything they do at the end you understand you, you may not agree at all but you kind of have to understand that if you're fighting people who don't play by any rules the only way to strike back is to find someone who's not going to play by the rules yeah I, I love the cinematography on the drive towards the beast it's like a big long aerial slow pans it's almost like kind of anthropomorphizes the city you're kind of like slowly getting near and it's like a sprawling thing and then you just got the drums and then the helicopter kind of picks up with the drums as well. So it's kind of like, yeah, what's the word? It's like the diegetic or something where it's like the, the sound in the movie becomes like a kind of a prop as well. And it's all building up. But yeah, I, I thought that was class. Yeah. Denis Villeneuve loves that. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking he has a scene like that and every single time he does it, I'm like, oh, wow, that just is such an amazing like cinema experience. He, he did it in Prisoners, Sicario, Blade Runner, Arrival, and Dune, where he's got some slow pan over a landscape with dramatic music, revealing some striking thing on the other side of it. And, like, he could do that in every single one of his films until <laughs> I die. And I, every time I'd be like, yeah, yeah, please give me more of that. It's just so it's so effective. Yeah, somehow his aerial shots don't look like typical ones, right? They're just the ones that are shot straight down, and you see yeah. the desert at some weird angle. It looks like another planet. It's very, very unique, and it sets the mood that... I don't know, it, it feels like no place else somehow. Mm. Is he flying forward in a helicopter and then slowly moving the camera back? Like Things seem to be going at like a weird angle to themselves. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really strange. And then more setting of the tension, right? The whole drive to Juarez. And, and 
at first they thought she was going to El Paso, right? She doesn't know anything, <laughs> but they were going into Mexico. And the whole drive with the police escort from the, the Mexican police and everybody has the, the face mask and the big 50 cal guns. And it's like, okay, like we thought this was serious with the Delta Force guys and everything, but now that wasn't enough, right? You see some armored vehicles on the, the side of the streets. like, okay, we're going into a war zone. And, and the music, everything is incredible at building tension. By the time you're stuck at the border crossing with the dogs barking, you're ready for anything, right? It's a hair trigger type of, of feeling for me. Yeah, the music in this film is, is just crazy. Apparently, um, Denis Villeneuve said to the composer, he was like, oh, just give me like the sound of threat. <laughs> just like, give me the sound of threat. And like, I think he pointed him to like Jaws as like a sort of point of reference. Mm. And like, actually, you can actually really see the Jaws in like the dude and that like, going over and over again it does feel a bit jaws like there's like no no melody or no. like musicality it's like when all the migrants are kind of sitting around the bosses which we'll get to and then at the very end it's just kind of like hymnal kind of singing but other than that it's just basically two notes and drums yeah in various variations of yeah it like it's very Hans Zimmer in a way but it's more like stripped back than Hans Zimmer it's like pure bass <laughs> it's like if you give Hans Zimmer two notes exactly yeah, it's almost like weirdly industrial, but still kind of organic, right? Yeah. Like the heartbeat of a machine, kind of. Yeah, apparently on Blade Runner, then this guy was supposed to do the score and then Villeneuve was like, oh no, I want something closer to the original score. So then he got Hans Zimmer to do it. <laughs> but then the score Hans Zimmer uses for the equivalent scene in Blade Runner, the flight to LAPD, where he's flying on the ship towards... It just sounds exactly like this one. <laughs> so, so, so you like, had to displace this guy and then, and then, and then took his score. <laughs> Another interesting choice, I thought, on the bridge scene, while they're waiting, the camera shows you the other guys in the car with weapons, right? So that's not a surprise. Mm. The obvious thing to do would have been, like, you don't know where it's coming from. But instead, he shows us, and it's more about, like, how and when. That's the surprise. It's not... Who is it going to be? Or is it going to happen? Like, we know it's going to happen. The tension has been building so much. You know it's going to happen. But even without that element of surprise, I think they still do an incredible job of the tension. And it's coming from all sides, right? And he keeps it very clear. I think, like, there's some aerial shots and you see, like, everybody dispersing on the bridge. And apparently all of the tactics used and how they handle their weapons and everything is very, very realistic. They used a bunch of consultants and they sweated the details there very much. And it, it does look very realistic. But then you still have some surprises, right? Kate almost gets shot from the back, and it's so very well choreographed. Yeah, it's a bit like Western-y when they're all pointing the guns at each other and there's just that like silence, and it, I can't remember whether the soundtrack cuts out or not, but it feels like it goes on forever, that moment where they're just staring yeah. each other down. And then like what you were saying earlier about how like when there is violence, it's like not glorified, it's like really quick, and like it seems to just go on forever that they're staring each other down, and then as soon as one of them shoots, like it's, it's so yeah. quick. Before they reach the bridge... Alejandro turns to him and everyone's down and like, yeah, keep an eye out for state police. They're not always the good guys. Mm, yeah. And then that comes back again, you know, post bar, where it's like a, a state police from across the border then as well. And then obviously him saying that, considering we know what he actually is. So there's like three things yeah. going on that they all kind of percolate out. Yeah. Anyone could be a threat. Another quick shot. Right after all of the shooting, you see uh, Josh Brolin's character and he's still sitting in his vehicle. He's chewing gum. He's cool as a cucumber right this isn't his first rodeo like he doesn't look phased at all by all of this i think that's another really character revealing moment for him yeah for sure another like is a really quick little shot just before that scene which i really like is um when there's the police cars up flying past and then it cuts to some people playing i think they're play, are they playing squash or are they playing basketball just two guys against a wall and then like the camera sort of shows and then then it sort of 360s round them yep. and then follows the police cars little bit of world building and showing that like there's people living there and this place has lived in like when kate's in the car before they reach the bridge again she looks left and like there's a parallel street and she sees a cop car and mm. then it goes again she looks left again and it's not there even that, that actually doesn't come back but yeah. again it's just kind of keeping you kind of on tender hooks kind of the whole scene yeah yeah and showing the perspective of the civilians right so many films right there there's i don't know a james bond film and they're running through a city and firing at each other and cars are jumping over bridges or whatever it's like it's only a background for the action but you kind of forget it's a real city with people they don't really matter to the film but in this film i think there are all these little reminders right the parallel story with the policeman and his family i think that's a strong one even now the film ends with the soccer game right machine gun in the background and they kind of all stop and is it coming closer no okay let's play soccer right those little moments it makes it sadder in a way because you know this is kind of based on real events, right? It's not purely fiction, but it has this layer to the film. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I was immediately kicked out because watching him, like, watching him trying to play soccer, I was like, they, they couldn't cast a kid who could actually kick a ball. Like, <laughs> when, when you watch soccer on screen, it just never, it never works. I, I, like, I've never seen a movie where soccer works on screen for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, I should have called it football for you guys. <laughs> Another big scene, I think, that reveals even more the character of Alejandro, the, the interrogation. So till now, they, they brought back the guy to the U.S., the physicality that Benicio del Toro plays it, right? When he walks around with the big jug of water and like just, just another day at the office, right? Basically, and he gets in the room and he gets right in that guy's face, right? So inside of his personal space and you don't even have to show him do anything, right? You know what he's capable of and how comfortable he is with this type of interrogation slash torture situation. That's the moment I think his protagonist, Eric, kicks in because you get a scene with him alone and there's this suited Mexican guy as well. And he's like, at the end of it, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, what happened to you? Yeah. So then you're kind of like, all right, so there's like, so something kicks into gear then. We're like, okay, why are they alone? And why are we watching them? And then what happened there? Yeah, I didn't know Ghost got thirsty. But that, that final scene, they are putting down the gallon of water just next to the drain. They did loads of that throughout. Just like, it's all like the suggestion and it's not showing it as like you would in a Michael Bay where it's like, you know, kapow. And then <laughs> just kind of going through every motion. I think it just works so much better. Let the imagination do it. Yeah. There's a shot as well just before that when they arrive when... Uh... Before they go into the building and Emily Blunt comes out and starts shouting at um, Josh Brolin's character. And then he's being like, oh, you just need to watch and listen. And she's like really going at him. And like the camera sort of like, is that like mid distance? And you expect it's going to like go in or then do like a shot reverse shot thing. And it just sort of hangs there at the mid distance, just watching them argue. And then Josh Brolin's character like walks in. And Emily Blunt is what you were saying earlier about how like let the scenes go on longer a couple of seconds than you expect them to. And she's just sort of left standing there in this mid-distance shot, just like clearly just thinking like, where am I? Like, what is this world? And very much an outsider, right? Yeah. Yeah, because that's the moment. And then he obviously becomes kind of, let's say, if he becomes a protagonist, you know, two seconds later. In that scene then, I wrote it down, she's like, why am I here? And Roland's like, give us the opportunity to shake the tree and create chaos. Mm, She's just there. He's literally just said that you're a pawn, basically. And then things kind of, it's like a fulcrum then, and then things begin to switch. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember if it's exactly that scene around then, but they also talk about why are you doing this? And it's like every day by his end or his blessing, people are killed or kidnapped. Finding him would be like finding a vaccine. You can see the value in that, right? They're trying to be like, we're doing all of this because the stakes are so high. This bad guy is so bad that like, basically the ends justify the means. We're justified in doing almost anything, right? There's a line later in the film, what you fear is operating out of bounds. I assure you, you are not. The boundary has been moved. It's really like they are the law, basically. Yeah. I was thinking about that scene quite a lot, actually, because I was uh, at first I was quite surprised because, like, I was thinking, oh, well, how does that affect Emily Blunt's character's conflict then? If she knows that what she's doing isn't outside the rules, then does that sort of somehow assuage her? Or, or does that make her conflict sort of less dramatic or whatever? And I was thinking, actually, no, it probably does the opposite because, like, I feel like her character throughout is trying to almost, like, hide behind procedure and it's like okay if it's within procedure then it's okay and if it's not in procedure then it's not okay which is why she keeps on saying like Alejandro is not authorized to boss me around or like she's like very much shown as someone who's following the book and then by her superior saying no okay whatever you do it's within the rules that suddenly means like Hmm. her moral compass has to actually come into play even more it's like I can't hide behind the rules am I okay with what's happening or not which then makes things increasingly difficult for her as it goes on Yeah, and also someone can say that the boundary has been moved, right? But does that mean anything? Is it true? Does he have that authority, right? Who's that guy, right? Over time, she figures out he's CIA, but then CIA can't operate in the US. And that's kind of the reveal later, right? The only reason they picked her is because she has no clue and CIA can't operate in the US without being tied up to a domestic agency like the FBI. That's all she is, right? She's a checkbox, basically, for that mission. I don't want to jump around too much, but before the tunnel, right? All the Delta guys are like, keep your safeties on, point your guns to the ground, yeah. don't shoot any of my team, right? They're like, we don't need you. We don't want you here. It's like, it's literally, it's, it's lawless within the law. And, and then obviously then you have like, you know, okay, which cartel is right? Okay, and then on the Mexican border, you're okay to do certain things on the American side of the border, but not the Mexican side of the border and vice versa. And then on the Mexican side of the border, cartel and police are also in, intermingling. So there's like, it's, it's like an undefinable shape about like, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, A versus B. There's like, it's like things coming from up, down, left, right, diagonal, <laughs> yeah. sideways. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's just unclear. Even the image of the Mexican policeman, like loading up tons of drugs in his police car and like driving off in the storm, right? And that, that image is really a huge metaphor. 
the next big scene, I think, is when she goes in the bank, right? That's a point where she reverts to her kind of like her nature as an FBI agent. She's like, I want to build a case. I want to find some evidence. I want to put people behind bar. She doesn't understand yet what they're doing, right? She doesn't know that this is all going somewhere else. So she's like, we got to build a case. And they warn her not to go in the bank. And I think in a lesser movie, you would have seen her in the bank and then you would have seen like a shot of some some cartel guy watching a, a recording of her and then they look... No, all that Denis does is like show you the camera on the ceiling and that's it. And you understand, oh, yeah. like she just fucked up, right? She yeah. showed her face on film at a bank that's partnering with the cartels. This leads to the bone-chilling scene where the local cop, right? They meet at the bar and like they dance and they he's kind of a, an acquaintance or maybe a friend of her partner, right? So they end up in their apartment she notices the rubber bands right that are the same so the story is all told visually but by the time he's like choking her and going like then i don't know that's very effective right we've all seen all kinds of scenes of violence like that but i thought this was very very like i had a chill going down my spine watching that yeah so it's 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 horrible to watch and and like the the reveal when he empties his pockets and then he put the band and that reveal when the the camera sort of puts that in focus and then her face and it's like it's oh yeah such a like oh my god well, this is one thing I couldn't quite work out. What are those bands? Are they like, oh, I'm a member of the cartel? <laughs> like, like a sort of membership? I couldn't quite work out what those bands actually like, what they were. The way I interpreted it is just that in the money they seized, they were used. And so that guy had been paid off from one of those mules carrying the money, right? He's one of the policemen on the payroll, yeah. Ah, okay. One thing I didn't get was, so she shows her face in the bank, and then she's very quickly in the bar. So how has the guy organized this date for her? And how is the They just found out she was just in the bank. And then all of a sudden, this managed to be like a corrupt policeman has managed to befriend her friend and kind of get himself invited to the bar. The way I, I read it is there may have been more time in between the bank and the bar than, mm. than we see in the film. They kind of jumped ahead a bit. I suspect that after they got the money confiscated, like someone from the cartel just called their law enforcement's friend and, and were like, mm-hmm. go watch some of the films and do you recognize who that is, right? And one of them, like, oh, yeah, I know her partner. Followed the car and they saw they went to the bar and that's where he did that. But, yeah, they kind of skipped some steps. That's how I fill it in. Maybe it doesn't work as well as that. But I kind of saw that as, like, they have informants planted into all kinds of police there. And inside of a a police force operating in an area, like, people know each other, right? It's the same people over and over again, right? And especially doing narcotics and these types of raids. It's probably not a big number of people. Yeah. Poor Reggie. I mean, that's his only actual contribution to the plot really is introducing her to that guy isn't it <laughs> great job <laughs> I mean, yeah, other than that he's sort of just you know i suppose he's a moral compass but plot wise he's just sort of there drives him around a bit so yes yeah, so it's not not yeah not a great few weeks for him well thankfully alejandro was the savior there right he, yeah he had been following her and you could see him watch her uh, before but the first time you sit you don't know why right a bit of misdirection like you're wondering okay is, is alejandro yeah. now can I do something to Kate? But no, he saves her with the the, psst, <laughs> the gun into Kate's face. When do you see her watching her? I missed that. When he, she's leaving the station and you see that he's in the car in the parking lot and he sees her oh, leave. Okay, yeah, I missed that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then she's like, you use me as bait. And they're like, no, you use yourself as bait. We told you not to go in the bank, right? It's all your fault, basically. It's like, we're not going to yeah. protect you. But now that you did this, well, it's useful to us. Mm, you yeah. get the sense that the, mo- the moment she like because he already kind of half-heartedly says don't go into the bank so like the moment she's gone he's like all right now so now now, now the bait plan is happening like almost in real time yeah, yeah now we gotta yeah, watch her because something's gonna happen yeah it is jumping ahead slightly but one other thing on that scene is i read somewhere that after they come out the tunnel when matt then she tries to attack matt and matt then sort of pushes her to the ground apparently what he the words he says to her then are the same as what john bernthal's character is or something and it's sort of shot in the same way and so it's obviously very clearly meant to evoke that, like, she's just being, like, basically mistreated by these men and it's sort of trying to draw a comparison between what they're doing institutionally to her to what like, what John Benthel's character was doing to her. We can go to the tunnel, right? That shot of the guys walking towards the darkness with the night vision goggles on with the, the sun having set and all that, that's yeah. one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen. I don't know if it resonates with others the way it does to me, but every time I see that scene and like the whole metaphor of like going down in the darkness and the way the colors and the way it's shot and the diagonal across, and beautiful shot, I love it. From within the cave and you just see it's like one black thing just kind of comes into focus and then leaves. So you can barely make out what's happening, but yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, and as you said, the fact it's like, it's not just like 
sort of screensaver cinematography. Like, it's a beautiful image. Yeah, there's obviously it's like they're descending into darkness. And it has a storytelling purpose as well as just being like a really cool image. Um, yeah, it's murky. So it's not too sharp, which I like. You're, you're struggling to kind of make out what's what, which makes it way more effective. I, I promise that I was like leaning forward. Like, I was watching it here. So like, I'm kind of sitting up. But I kept like just putting, put, put my, putting myself back. I was like, <laughs> like a 45 degree angle about three or four times throughout it. Yeah, and I like how they, they shot the night stuff, right? Because a lot of films, they kind of, you have to pretend that it's dark, right? But you kind of see that they shot with light and then they, they did something. But here, they got a real night vision camera because there, there are two things. There are the IR goggles and the night vision stuff. And they got a real one and they sh really shot in the dark, which gives a very, very different feeling than most of these types of scenes. In a podcast, they mentioned like at one point Kate bumps her head in, in the tunnel and they kept it, right? That wasn't scripted, but that, it, it does feel real, right? I was wondering that. I, I saw that head bump and I was thinking, oh, is, was that part of the script or not? So it wasn't, was it? That that was something that they just left in. Yeah, it wasn't. And the confusion, right? They In a lot of the film, they're pretty good at, like uh, the British scene, they're good at like giving you some aerial shots and wide shots and you can kind of see where everybody is. In the tunnels... I think it's the opposite, right? They want you confused. Who's running where? What's, what's going? How long is this thing? It's like total chaos. And I think it, it works. You feel just as disoriented as Kate would be. And that's why she ends up on the wrong side of the tunnel too, probably. Yeah, this is kind of like Blair Witch, where you're kind of just like, it's you're like, always <laughs> looking left and right with her. But I think because we're meant to be kind of looking to her, so we only can ever see as far, except in parts. We see as far as she does. So they actually properly do that in the tunnel. Like the first two throat cuts, you just hear it. And then it's like three or four seconds, and then you see the, the kind of luminous outline of the body with the night vision. And then the, all the initial gunshots, you don't see anything at the beginning as well. And then you kind of arrive at it, which again, in a different movie, you'd be just getting like a close-up straight away of like someone lining up a sniper type thing, but no, not here. Yeah, you're right. It's more about what you can't see than what you can see. And the, the infrared footsteps mm -hmm. on the floor, yeah. like one by one leading up to that body, and it's like, you, it, yeah, yeah. And this is the, a big turning point in the film, right? So you see Alejandro come out the other side of the tunnel, shoots a guy, like, at gunpoint, kidnaps the policeman and gets his car. And then Kate comes in, and she's in law enforcement mode, right? She's like, she sees the gun on the floor, like, she just shot someone, and she points the gun at Alejandro. And the first thing he does is he shoots her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the first time I saw the film, that was very shocking. Like, okay, he knew she had a, a vest on and everything, but it's still, like we're not friends here, right? You've been useful to what I was trying to do so far. He saved their life in the apartment, but this isn't that type of relationship. Yeah, exactly. Like the film's like, it's just given you enough to think that they're forming like, a, not like a romantic bond, but they like, because he says to her like, oh, you remind me of someone who was very dear to me or yeah. something. And, and like, he sort of asked her how her neck was the morning after and you just start to think, okay, they're building this. Yeah, partnership or friendship or something deeper, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so then when the gunshots come, you're like, oh, wow, this is not, not what I thought was going to happen. I've seen her, Kate's character, described as a, a decoy protagonist, because the whole film you're following her and you think it's her, but she doesn't move the story that much. And then from that point on, it's really Alejandro's story, right? That's the big culmination of everything. And you realize that everything else has been built around him to allow him to get to Fausto's house. They have drones in the air. There's aerial surveillance. This is a huge deployment of resources from the U.S. Like even like they fly around on private jets. They go on military bases. They have Delta Force. All these resources are just so that one person can get across after they do enough. Like they shake the tree and you know, someone is recalled home. They can follow him, figure out where, get in the house. Like all of that has been just so this guy could do this. And the first time you watch it, it doesn't make sense until the very end. But as you rewatch it, like you see all of the pieces being put into place. I was kind of thinking in my head, it's like, it's, it's a straightforward vengeance story. A, from with the Medellin in Colombia, and it goes straight to Faustos. So it's a, just a, a, straight, a straight A to B vengeance story. And then you, we just arrive in the middle of it as like a, a different, just as one of the side characters. And then we're trying to figure out how we go on. But like the, it's a conventional story, but then we kind of just come in at Kate's position. Because obviously Alejandro's been just doing the thing. He's just gone from Colombia to Mexico to kill this guy. So there's also like a really straightforward story there as well. Yeah. But one layer that's added is, uh, I think it's Matt that tells Kate outside of the tunnel, I think, you know, when she, she asks something like, oh, yeah, who's Alejandro working for? And, and he says, like, he worked for anyone who will point him at the people who cut off his wife's head and threw his daughter in the vat of acid, right? Which is fucking horrifying <laughs> to even think about. So then if... Alejandro was like a Colombian cartel guy who was in a power struggle with the Mexicans and he tried to kill them for like 
I don't know, that would have been a very impersonal story, right? Like a bunch of cartels trying to dominate it. That would have made sense, right? But eh. but now it's so personal. Alejandro is using all of this machine of government and everything, but at the end of the day, it's purely a, a revenge, but a, it's a Hinigo Montoya moment. No, absolutely. Because there is two storylines that just yep. they intersect on basically on that plane. Interesting. I'd love to know how he, his A to B, how, how he wrote the story. Like, you know, did he just begin with Kate? Did Alejandro exist? Was it vice versa? I'd love to know that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think all the interesting like, ideas in the film come from Kate. It's almost like Alejandro's like the plot protagonist in the sense that like he's mm -hmm. starts the action. But like the part of the film that I find really interesting is like, yeah, the this conflict between like, do the ends justify the means and like the difference between what's morally right and what's sort of systematically right and stuff. And all that stuff comes from Kate's arc, even if it's plot-wise, she's a bit of a sort of onlooker. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of transposed. It's like she does yeah. all one plot basically, just a story level, and then he does an action level kind of underneath. Yeah, it would be interesting to read the original script with ninety more percent of Alejandro dialogue, and maybe in some of that would be some of the answers to how he got there and more of his backstory and all of that. I think the film probably works better that way, and I don't think the fact that Kate is more of a witness than the protagonist. I don't think that's a weakness of the film. I think that makes the film better and, and more original and unique, right? I, I don't want the listener to think that I, I'm saying this is a bad thing. It's another subversion of the genre, which brings us to the Last Supper scene, right? The final scene. And I think the first time I saw that one was also like mind-blowing scene. And there again, I think Denis is not afraid of holding on shots a lot longer than others would. That scene seems to lack a very, very long time the first time you see it. I'm, I'm curious how you reacted to it or what you think of it. Oh, it's, it's incredible. I, I noticed that throughout. I thought I, I made note like three or four times. It's like the length of silence that he was letting in scenes, which I've watched a bit of um, Yellowstone over my dad's shoulder, but I couldn't do it because, you know, those lines where it's like, you know, don't ask about the clock, uh, just focus on keeping the, uh, watching the time. Like Yellowstone seems to be like, that's just like the dialogue is just those back and forth all the time. But in this, it's like the reason those kind of lines work, I think is because there's so much space and silence left. Because again, so many scenes with Del Toro just kind of staring and just, you're kind of waiting for him to say something and then he's just a little nod and then it goes back to Kate or whatever. But yeah, in, in that final scene, yeah, it's just kind of a masterclass in that. A tiny little detail I noticed this time was that I think they start speaking in Spanish and then Del Toro's like, do your family speak English? And the guy's like, no. So then they go to speaking in English. But then like, because this is just like raw emotion coming from Del Toro now, like very quickly they just switch back to Spanish. And before you realised it, it's back to being subtitled, which is like a tiny little detail, but like sort of like implies that he's, it shows that he's, this is just like pure emotion now. Yeah, it also gave Fausto the false hope that he was going to spare his family. Like, I don't want them to understand that they won't know what's going on. And at first he thinks Alejandro will only kill him. They mentioned that they shot two ending to the film, one with the family and one without, because the studio was a bit like shaky on that decision. But... It makes sense with the character that he would have done this, right? Because it's purely personal. His own family was not spared. And it's terrible, but it's... You see the how someone like Fausto could compartmentalize his life, right? On one side, he's the guy like hanging dismembered people from bridges and like, all these, these bodies in the houses and kidnappings and creating a war zone over a whole city and a whole country, basically. And on the other... He has this beautiful house and beautiful family and eating his nice supper, like relaxing at home with protected by armed guards. And this is another great contrast. Yeah. What made that scene for me, it's almost like a little double reversal where he goes, just not in front of my family. So then you're wondering, okay, is Alejandro going to shoot him in front of his family or will he take him away and, like, and shoot him? And then he just shoots the family. So he didn't die in front of his family. His family was gone by then, right? It's like, yeah, no, exactly. technically so you like, got what you wanted. Yeah, it makes you asking the wrong question. You kind of, it almost implies that the family's going to be spared. Like, can you just do this away from them? Yeah. Uh, and then just kills them first, which is always well. Yeah, I think if he just killed the boss, it would have veered a bit close to being like, maybe a bit too much moral clarity, as in the whole film is that there's no good guys here and everyone is yeah. so morally compromised. You know, at the end, it doesn't hold back in being like Alejandro is... You know he's involved. He's as involved in this. Broken. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know he is not okay. He might be a protagonist in plot terms, in terms of he's driving the plot forward. But like, there's no sort of moral redemption for him here whatsoever. Yeah, it's the whole like, can you fight monsters without becoming a monster yourself? Kind of yeah. dilemma. Me, Nietzsche, yeah, stare into the abyss. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the abyss yeah. stares into you. The next scene is kind of the 
epilogue at Kate's apartment. And I like how this was done. So she's on the balcony and it's very subtle. I think it's the first time I notice it and I come at Ford viewing, but she turns around because the nature of the sound coming from her patio door changes. So someone got into her apartment and by opening the door, the sound changes on the other side. And that's what she notices. And so it's super subtle. And then she goes and Alejandro is there, right? He wants her to sign a piece of paper. This says that we did everything by the book. Points her own gun at her head. If you don't, you would be committing suicide, right? Totally confirming that Kate was just a tool for him to get to do what he wanted to do, right? You may say, oh, you remind me of my daughter or my wife or whatever, but like, I don't think he would hesitate very much if she tried to do something. I had a very, very slightly different read on that, which is tying into how the whole film is so morally uncertain, like intentionally, is that I wasn't sure whether actually he was pointing the gun at her to try and assuage her of any moral culpability for signing the form. He was basically saying, look, it's suicide. You don't have a choice here. So in a way, he was almost doing it in a really perverted way from a position of, almost from a position of what he deems as kindness. He's like, you're not a wolf. Even if he wasn't going to shoot, I'm going to take the moral... It's not a moral decision for you, yeah. Exactly, yeah. I didn't. Know, I don't know if that is what's happened. That's like another read of it. That's clever. That would make sense. If he was giving her an out by saying like, oh, I didn't want to, but he had a gun to my head, then that nullifies the paper, right? The paper's not, not going to work. So I think mm. he still wants her not to yeah. talk about it. And it's like, oh, no, I'll come back, right? <laughs> also. Yeah, yeah. But the way he does it, right? He's not like screaming at her or threatening or anything. He's just like kind of getting close and like matter of fact and... It's even more chilling that way. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. Because yeah, he walks in and says, you, you, you look like a little girl when you're scared. Yeah, it's horrible. She's like, she's like regressed to like an infant in that scene, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think the way it was written, there was supposed to be more stuff in the scene where I think like he lifts part of her shirt and you see all of her, her bruises and how she's beaten up. And there was more stuff where it was kind of like threatening and like kind of like, and I think it's Emily Blunt that said like, you don't need any of that, right? I'll just... You'll see it in my face, what I'm thinking. And just him being there is, is plenty enough or something like that. And they kept it more subdued, but I think it's even more chilling, right? Yeah. Josh Brolin's character is so sort of um, a scene stealer because he's so sort of smarmy. And, and obviously Benicio Del Toro is a sort of mysterious. You sort of forget Emily Blunt is so fucking good in this film. Like she just absolutely carries it. Like I'm not, I'm not surprised that, I haven't seen it, so maybe, maybe the reviews are unfair, but I'm not surprised the sequel was less well received without her in it because... Her character is so important to making this film work and all her like nervous little glances and the way she's still like presenting herself as strong but like slightly losing it over the film. It like she I think she does it so well. I think it's like yeah. definitely her best I don't know, of the films I've seen her in, it's definitely my favourite of her performances. I think she's great. So Alejandro like puts her gun apart, throws the pieces and walks out. She runs, she she puts her gun back together and she has him in the crosshairs from the balcony. And what does Alejandro do when he sees that? He turns around to give her the biggest target possible, right? He's not trying to hide or run or something. And he waits and he waits. And like, it's like the stare is like, I know you won't do it. Like you, you, you can't do it. That's not you, right? He's like almost taunting her that you want to shoot me? Like, here I am, but you're not a wolf, right? And, and yeah. there's so much character moments and character development in this film that, that is totally silent and without dialogue. And I think that's another just great little parting gift at the end. That's good, because the moment he left all of the gun parts right in the kitchen, I was like, what the fuck are you doing? Just can I at least keep the bullets or something? Like, <laughs> yes. it, seems, it, seems, it seems kind of mad just to lift just a little <laughs> on a table for her. But that kind of plays into his confidence that she wouldn't do it regardless. So that kind of works even on that level. So my read of the very final scene of football was that was them telling us that it had all been for nothing and that like the ends didn't justify the means in the end because... The, Nothing has changed on the ground. That that was what I took that to represent, but I don't know whether that was too clear cut. I was just watching the technique. <laughs> yeah, just watching the football. <laughs> I just saw it as a, like a moment in life of the people around the story, right? Like, okay. you can be all excited about like the big SUVs driving fast at the borders and the, the Delta guys and all that, but like, there's people trying to live just next door to all of that violence, right? That I saw it at that level, but I also think like all of that, but now it's just someone different in charge it's not gone away right i saw it's kind of like because their kids is kind of future looking it's like this is like it's just going to be exactly the same and it's going to this is just going to happen again like there's going to grow into this yeah it's not an upper movie let's say it's not a christmas <laughs> movie no <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's die hard but any final thoughts anything we forgot to mention any aspects of it that you really liked where would you guys rank it how would you rank 
Villeneuve's films. That's hard. That's really hard. How would you do it, Lane? <laughs> I would turn <laughs> the tables on you while I think. Um, I love Blade Runner 2049. I think that's my number one. I think this is number two. Arrival 3, June 4, Enemy 5, Prisoner 6. I haven't seen on Sunday. It's too hard, right? I can't, like yeah. Prisoner 6, right? That, that would be the number one film for many directors but yeah i mean ah. prisoners is <laughs> i've seen it once and i've got no real interest in watching prisoners again as it is a well-made movie but it's oh my god it's oh, so it's rough yeah 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 and if you have kids i think it's even worse <laughs> yeah i can imagine how about you dylan or i don't know if you've seen them all or if you have a like a top three i haven't seen blade runner 49 i haven't seen a uh, dune i'm probably put yeah prisoners three arrival two and this one i think this is this is no, this is better than Arrival for me, yeah. Oh, but now you got to see Blade Runner. I can't do it, right? I can't rank them. But Blade Runner, I really loved it. It's like, it's so rare to see a good sci-fi film. That's also a good film. Like, that's also not, not just a sci-fi film, but just purely a good film. I think that was it for me. So many memorable scenes and images in Blade Runner. And like, that may be number one, but I don't know. How can I rank the others, right? Too hard for me, but Sicario is, is Desert up there. Island, you can take three. Ah, <laughs> uh, probably Blade Runner, Sicario, and maybe Arrival. But we'll see. When Dune Part 2 is out, I, I, I think that's kind of like we don't know how good that one is yet because it's not done. I really like yeah. Dune 2. I like them all, right? And Aysanzi is also very good. It's another gut punch of a film. As we said, right, he's explored very, very dark themes, very personal tragedies in his films. That's more of that. Like, you kind of have to be in the right mood to see it, but I, I also recommend it. Yeah. Some people who don't like Villeneuve say it's like that he's like a really like cold and like sort of clinical filmmaker, which I, I feel like is sort of true in a way. But I like really connect. <laughs> I really connect with that, and like I just feel like he's a cold Doesn't and surprise me. <laughs> but he's like he's cold and clinical. But it's like he's so atmospheric, and like dialogue's really not his strong point. But his way of treating that is just to minimize and dialogue and like maximize an atmosphere and like i feel either you like connect with that on like a guttural level or you don't and i can un understand why some people don't but like i definitely do was i feel like someone like nolan who's probably is like most i don't know probably as close as comparison of like people t today i feel like his weakness is also dialogue but he compensates for it by going in on like exposition <laughs> like i thought when he has turned his weakness into a strength whereas nolan sort of i i love nolan for lots of other ways but like yeah yeah, it's hard to compare. It's it's really hard. Like Nolan has very very high peaks, but some of his flaws when they come out to me are are very big. Like Tenet is not the film I liked much, right? For example, there's a Tenet Renaissance at the moment. I'm, I'm back. I'm back in on Tenet. I know. Like Jim <laughs> is big into Tenet. Everybody's yeah. like, there's the backlash to the backlash. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited to watch it. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. It's having a bit of a Renaissance, I think. All right. I hope the listener, after listening to this, wants to rewatch it again and will notice all kinds of new stuff. This is the fun of these types of films. I think they have layers. They have all kinds of cool details. It's like those books that you read and, and you finish it and you can reread it again and see it all differently, right? Like Ian Banks' use of weapons or some of, some of these things. Thank you so much, guys, for doing this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we didn't know which films we would do, but I was due for a Sicario rewatch. So thank you for following me there and, and doing your own <laughs> yeah no thank you it was good fun thank we'll you it. it was great do it again all right bye bye